buildings and the trees. It is a delight to be here. And today we're going to be in God's Word in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17. And please read along with me as we study God's Word. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to study your word today, that you have given us Jesus Christ and that your word points to him. We ask that you would be with the teaching of the word today, that it would be effective through your Holy Spirit, that we would love Jesus more through it, and that he would be glorified. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I found that there are two types of Lego builders in the world. There's the first type who follows the instructions. And whatever they make resembles whatever the instruction book was telling them to make. But then there's the second type of Lego uh, builder. And this is the chaotic, destructive type. The instructions are more like suggestions. And they might build something at the end, but it's not necessarily what was on the box as advertised. In the life of the church, we as Christians are tempted to build the church according to our own way. And this temptation isn't unique to us. It's been a temptation throughout the history of God's people. And we see Paul addressing this very issue in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17. The Corinthians were tempted to build the church according to their own way, according to their own directions. Now, Corinth was a principal Roman city in the Greco-Roman Empire. It was the, the capital of the empire in the Roman province of Greece, and it acted as a trading hub between uh, Rome itself and the eastern portion of its empire. It was cosmopolitan. Think of it like L.A. or New York City today. And Acts 18 told us the story of how Paul traveled there and began his ministry by preaching in a Jewish synagogue. And after winning some converts, he was eventually kicked out of the synagogue and began to reach the Gentiles there. He spent a long time in that church, over a year year and a half, and it's best to think of him as the founding pastor of that church. 
and he was beloved both by the Jews and the Greco-Romans who were there as well. At some point after Paul left, though, Paul began to receive reports that there was infighting within this particular congregation. He mentions in 1 Corinthians 1.11 that a group he refers to as Chloe's people had informed him that the church was fighting amongst themselves. He also mentions in 1 Corinthians 7.1 that the Corinthians themselves had written a letter to him asking for theological advice and direction. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10 that the aim of his entire epistle is to address the divisions within the church and to bring about healing so that the church might be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And in chapters 1 and 2, he embarks on that process by explaining that Christ alone is the unity of the church, that Christ is the power of God for those who are being saved, and that's what brings the church together— Christ and Christ alone. And so Paul says that he's going to focus on Christ and him crucified. Then in chapter 2, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the understanding of the cross, that the Holy Spirit brings unity by giving us the mind of Christ. And by having that mind, we are united to the power of Christ and to one another. We're, We're reconciled to God and to one another. But then in chapter 3, Paul changes his tone a little bit. He gets a little more direct as he marvels that the congregation has failed to grow. He cannot believe that after all this time, it's as if they were brand new Christians still. They're still thinking of the gospel and of the church in a worldly way. And they build the church like a Jew, or they build the church like a Gentile. They don't build the church like a Christian. And that leads us to today's passage where Paul talks about how God builds his church, or as Paul says, the temple. And ask yourself these questions as we go through this passage. How does God build his temple? How does God build his temple? And we're going to see that God builds his temple in three ways. By dwelling in the temple by equipping the builders, and by testing the structure. God builds his temple by dwelling in the building, equipping the builders, and testing the structure. And that by doing that, God builds his temple. So we must build it his way. So now let's, with those uh, questions in mind, let's look at 1 Corinthians 3, 9-17. through First, it's important to recognize that Paul is using one long metaphor from verse 9 through verse 17. In verse 9, he says, you are God's field, God's building. These two words are important. Field here technically means a cultivated field. It's a field that produces a crop. A farmer can expect to harvest from this field. And then building here can also mean both the physical structure of a building and the process of building. Like, I am building a building. It's the same thing here. So Paul gives two images, that of a field and of a building, to depict the church community as something that is growing and moving toward an end goal. The church has a goal in mind. 
And Paul used an image similar in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where he talked about the Corinthians as infants in Christ, and he's expecting these infants to grow into mature believers in Christ. And he switches in our passage this morning from the infant metaphor to the building metaphor, which lasts from verses 11 through 17. Paul calls himself a skilled master builder who laid the foundation of the building, and he identifies that foundation as Jesus Christ himself. He then says that the Corinthians themselves are workers who build on that foundation of Jesus. The Corinthians are the workers. Paul is the master builder. In verse 16, Paul then unveils the identity of this building project. He writes in verses 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The building project that the Corinthians are building is a temple. And the you in this passage is very important. It's plural. Where I'm from, Oklahoma, you say y'all. Paul is saying y'all are a temple. The church community, the church gathered and bound together, the church body is God's temple. Now, this is not an ordinary temple that a Greco-Roman might expect. The gods lived in many different temples, and the temples were not necessarily connected The temple projects that Paul is modeling his words after is Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. The Old Testament in Solomon's temple depicted the temple as the union between heaven and earth, where God's dwelling place was, filled with his glory and with his spirit. There was no other temple. There was just Solomon's temple. And God... He, as a holy God, he demands a holy place to worship. If he dwells in his people, his holiness has the power to destroy. So in order to dwell with his chosen people, Israel, God instituted a complex system of sacrifices and purity laws so that an Israelite could approach God and dwell with him without being destroyed. Otherwise, God's holiness struck them down as sinful human beings. Think of Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu broke God's law and offered unauthorized fire to God. God destroyed them. Think also of 2 Samuel 6 when Uzzah reached out and touched the ark without following the rules. He did it to prevent the ark from falling in the mud. But what he didn't realize was that the mud was holier than him as a sinful human being. God destroys unholy things that enter that temple. And that is what Paul means when he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Now that idea is unusual to us, this destruction holiness dynamic, but it wouldn't have been Uh, unfamiliar to the Greco-Romans or to the Jews, Uh, what they would have been destroyed, what they would have been surprised at was this image of an incomplete temple. So they would have understood that a sinful fallen person would go to a temple and destroy it by uh, trespassing the laws, but 
That only applied to complete temples, not incomplete temples. But in Paul's metaphor, the building project is incomplete. In verses 10 through 15, Paul and the Corinthian Christians are building the church temple. But in verse 16, he says that God's spirit already dwells there. That is very unlike what they would have expected. And it's also against the Old Testament pattern itself. In Exodus 40, God only dwells in the Mosaic tabernacle after it is complete and after it has been consecrated. Then again in 1 Corinthians 8 and 2 Chronicles 5-7, through the glory of the Lord descended upon Solomon's temple only after it was 100% complete and after it had been set apart. That's because a holy God deserves a complete temple that is holy. However, y'all, the church temple, are different. God dwells in you even though you are not yet complete. Even though you are not yet complete, as you are engaged in the messy process of building a temple, God dwells in you. His Holy Spirit is in you. Now imagine if you decided to build a house, and you, you design the house, and the builders lay the foundation. And after the foundation is laid, you're like, okay, I'm moving in. And it's just a slab of concrete. And so you put your bed in there, and you wake up in the morning to builders sawing wood. You're eating cereal that has uh, wood chips in it. That wouldn't be very fun. But your holy God dwells in his church temple. Even though the church is incomplete, even though the church is messy, and even though the church is sometimes ugly. The church is that way because we are incomplete, and we are sinful still. Nevertheless, even though you, the church, are incomplete, God loves you, and you are holy, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You're not what you will be, but God is here. Now, we've been asking the question, how does God build his temple? And we have that first part of our answer. God, uh, Paul tells us that God builds his temple by dwelling in the temple. God builds his temple by dwelling in the temple. Maybe you find yourself wishing that you or your church were a little more holy, a little more put together. Maybe you wish you reached more people or that you displayed the fruit of the Spirit better, that you were more faithful as individuals and as a community. Take heart in Paul's word because God loves you and the Holy Spirit dwells in you even though you are not yet what you will be in glory. God does not require either you or your church to reach a certain level of sanctification before he dwells in you. He's here already, right now. So don't despair. Don't despair that you're not perfect yet. Don't despair that your church is not perfect yet, or that the global church is not perfect yet, because God loves you and dwells with you. At the same time, don't rest. This is a building project. It's uh, the church is not yet complete, so get involved in the ministry of the church if you're not involved yet. I guarantee you that there are people here who would love help in whatever ministry they are a part of, that the ministry needs more workers, 
more, uh, more ministers. So ask around. Ask, how can I help build the church? Can I help out in Sunday school? Can I help out uh, with the children? Is there, you know, ask an elder, ask the pastor. There's something that you can do, and the church needs you because this is a community construction project. The reality of God's presence in the church temple has profound consequences for you, Hope Church. Because even as you work and even as you build, the Holy Spirit is here. So as you live and minister in your church, you live and minister in the presence of the Holy Spirit. When you prepare food for a fellowship group or you take out the trash after service, you're doing so in the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in his community. When you comfort a crying baby or when you uh, engage in children's church, when you teach a child a Bible verse, the Holy Spirit is there and watching you as you build the temple. He's here even now. So at the same time, take a sober look at yourself. Remember the context of Paul's temple passage. He was talking to a church that was divided on a whole host of issues from A to Z. And he was addressing that by reminding them that the Holy Spirit was there in their midst. So take that context and apply it here to Hope Church. When you disagree with another church member, God is there watching you in your disagreement. The Holy Spirit is present in your disagreement. So let me ask you some questions for you to ponder. When you disagree with someone else in the church, do you conduct your behavior as if you were standing before God's throne? Is the Holy Spirit pleased by the manner in which you disagree? Even in your disagreement, are you disagreeing in a way that contributes to the growth of Christ in the other person? I often fail at this, and I suspect that you do as well. We need God's grace. So what does that grace look like? How does God build his temple with us sinful people? Well, let's keep looking at that passage and keep asking the question, how does God build his temple? Look at verses 10 through 11 with me. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul identifies Jesus Christ as the foundation of the church temple. And Jesus is the foundation in two ways, according to this passage. First, the gospel message itself establishes the church. In verse 10, Paul describes himself as an apostolic worker and as a master builder who laid the foundation of the church. By going to the church, preaching the gospel, telling the good news of Jesus— he evangelized the Corinthians and formed a body of believers who lived in Corinth. The gospel message in Acts 18 uh, founded the community. By saying things about Jesus to people on purpose, Paul preached the gospel. 
And that's what laying a foundation means. But not only is the gospel message about Christ the foundation of the church, Christ himself, his person and work, is the foundation. Note that in verse 11, Paul does not say he laid the foundation. He says that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. Now, that's what you call a divine passive. A Jewish author would oftentimes use a passive verb when they, uh, didn't, when they didn't want to refer to God by name. It was just a common practice at the time. So the passive is what we see in this verse, but the active uh, verb is God laid the foundation. God laid the foundation. So the passive voice is another way of saying the foundation was laid by God. This is an example of God's action operative in the background of the building of the church. God laid the foundation of the church by sending Christ to die on the cross and bear our sins. And we receive his righteousness. That is how the church was established. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he became the foundation of the church. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1.23 when he says that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in one, uh, chapter 1, verse 30, he also writes, And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is both God's wisdom and God's power. And he is the foundation of the church and binds the church together. He is the foundation of the church. So when Paul describes the building of the temple, everything goes back to God. When Paul preached as the master builder, God gave him the grace. He says, according to the grace of God given to him. God himself enabled Paul's work in laying the foundation. And at the same time, God, by providing the means of salvation, laid the foundation. God is behind everything in the church. God is the one who builds the temple and is behind all its activity. Not only does God give Christ to the church and grace to the worker, but he also limits the scope of the church. Look again at verses 10 through 11. Paul says, Someone else is building upon the foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says that each one should take care how he builds upon it. And he's including the entire Corinthian church in this. Every church member is building God's temple. You, Hope Church, are building on the foundation of Christ. And Paul warns the Corinthians to build upon no other foundation than Christ, because he is the one and only foundation. According to verse 11, it isn't even possible to build on another foundation, because there's only one. Do you see the pattern here in this message? God gives grace to the worker. He gives them the person of Christ, and he gives them a task to build on the foundation. So how does God build his temple? Well, he does it by equipping the workers. God dwells in the temple, and he equips his workers. 
When I was five years old, I went fishing for the first time in Colorado, and I caught my first fish. And I use the term caught loosely because really it was my grandfather who did everything. He drove me to the pond. He bought the poles. He bought the bait. He rigged up the poles. He cast out the pole for me. He said, watch the bobber and just sit there. Don't move. Don't do anything. And then when the bobber went down, he said, set the hook. And when I didn't do it, he set the hook for me. And he said, reel it in. And I did. Uh, And I was so excited. But I didn't do anything. My grandfather did all of it. He caught my first fish. According to Paul, God builds his church, his temple, by equipping the workers. He saves the workers in Christ. He gives Christ to the church. He gives grace to those workers, and he gives them the task of focusing on what he's already done. God builds the church by equipping the workers. So Hope Church, use the tools that God gives you. Use the tools that God gives you to build his church. And the Bible is very clear about what those tools are. They're the means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer. Those are how you build the church. So use the word, use the sacraments, and use prayer. These are the tools that the Holy Spirit uh, uses. When I went fishing, I didn't use my own tools. I used the tools that my grandfather gave me. Brothers and sisters, it is so tempting to use other tools because our world has a lot of other tools that they want to give us. And they say, look to those tools. But we need to reject those tools because our Father gives us the tools that we need. And one of the tools that the world is trying to tell us right now as the cure-all for all ills is politics. They say that if you get out, vote, you get the right people in office— All the world's problems will be solved. It doesn't matter what those problems are. It could be poverty. It could be racial injustice. It could be uh, abortion or human sexuality. The world says, use politics and the world will be better. And the church is tempted to believe them. But here's the thing. It is good to use politics We are called as Christians to participate in politics for God's glory and praise God through politics. But God builds his kingdom, which is not of this world, through word, sacraments, and prayer. He gives you the tools. So focus on the simplicity of word, sacraments, and prayer and reject the tools of the world. In using the tools of word, sacraments, and prayer, continue to build upon the one foundation of Jesus Christ. And that means speak Christ to one another and act like Christ to one another. Encourage one another in Christ by reminding each other of the hope to come, that Christ is coming back and he will perfect you all. Forgive one another's sins as Christ forgave your own sins. When a brother or sister needs help, act like Christ and help them. And when a brother or sister has different opinions than yours, bear with them in love and do not wound one another's consciences. Finally, check your own priorities. 
check your own priorities by asking whether or not you are building on another foundation. Ask if you're building on another foundation. Do you believe that Christ alone is the church's foundation? Or have you replaced Christ with your favorite theologian? Is Kevin DeYoung your one foundation? Or is R.C. Sproul or Nancy Guthrie your one foundation? So check everything that your favorite theologian says against the scriptures. Be like the Bereans and search the scriptures and test against God's word. And when your favorite Christian departs from scripture, stick with scripture. Stick with scripture and pray that God would give you wisdom as you listen to the critiques of your favorite theologian. And by cleaving to scripture, you cleave to Christ, the church's one foundation. Because as Luke 24 tells us, all of scripture is about Christ. So, according to Paul, how does God build his temple? God builds his temple by dwelling in the building and by equipping the workers. Yet what happens when the builders use other tools than what God gives to build on the church structure? Well, let's find that out as we continue to look at the passage and ask, how does God build his temple? Look with me at verses 12 through 15. Paul writes, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In verse 13, you might notice that the word day is capitalized, and that's because Paul is referring to a very specific day, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord frequently appears in both the Old and the New Testament as the day when the Lord comes back and judges the world. In Matthew 24, Jesus applies the day of the Lord to himself. So it's the day when Christ will come back. Christ will come back. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 8, Paul mentions the day of the Lord as the day when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. 2 Peter 3 gives us a good description of the day of the Lord. You don't need to turn there, but listen to what uh, Peter says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Paul and Peter are talking about the same day. The day of the Lord will come and burn everything in the fire of judgment and expose everything. So, in the light of the impending day of the Lord, Paul tells the Corinthian workers to use building materials that won't burn up. If you notice, he used a list of materials that are either flammable or inflammable. Gold, silver, precious stones being in the first category, wood, hay, straw being in the second category. 
What determines whether your building material is flammable or inflammable? Paul has already given the answer in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-9 and 1 Corinthians 3, 18-22. Flammable building material comes from the world's wisdom. Flammable building material uses the world's wisdom. It is boastful, it is self-centered, it is proud, and it is respected by the world. However, inflammable building material comes from the wisdom of the cross. It is ministry that is foolish according to the world's standards. It is sacrificial. It is meek. It is Christ-centered. The lifelong process of picking up your cross, following Jesus, and dying to self makes up the inflammable building material. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul talks about building one another up in Christ. God loves it when we adorn his temple by building one another up in Christ. Now, according to Paul, the day of the Lord reveals what material we use to work on the building project. That day will come with fire and will burn away anything that is made with wood, hay, stuff like that. And I want you to pay attention to the work that Paul describes in verses 13 and 15. This work is not the same as the flammable or inflammable building material. You have the building material, and you have the building material that forms the work. Now, this work is the end product of the material. Paul is not talking here about works of the law. He believes in justification by faith alone. And he's not talking about good works done in faith either. The work Paul, he, Paul uses here means other Christians you build up in Christ. The work means other Christians who are built up in Christ. And we know this because 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5 does the exact same thing. Uh, Paul uses the temple metaphor like Paul does, and he uses the spiritual milk language that Paul uses also in 1 Corinthians 3. So their language is very similar. Therefore, I think what Peter says gives us an insight into the nature of that work. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The work that makes up, uh, that makes up Paul's temple is like the living stones that make up Peter's temple. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Paul refers to the Corinthians themselves as his workmanship. Therefore, the work in verses 13 through 15 means other Christians. So when Jesus returns, the fire of judgment will either consume or purify people. Whether or not they are consumed depends on whether or not they have faith in Christ and trust in him for salvation. 
Now that you know that work here means person, look again at verses 14 and 15. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. God tests the work that goes into the temple building project. The builder in this passage is saved and gets to be with the Lord. Paul never questions that. The builder gets to be with the Lord. Paul is talking about heavenly rewards here, whatever that might look like when Christ returns. We don't know precisely. If every Christian is a builder of the temple and ministering to other people, then they will receive a reward if that person survives the fire of judgment. If the person to whom they minister doesn't survive the fires of judgment, then they will miss out on that reward, that heavenly reward. At the end of verse 15, when Paul says that he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, Paul is acknowledging that every human in existence will undergo the fire of the day of the Lord. For believers, it's a fire of purification that burns away the sinful dross in our lives. But for unbelievers, those without faith, it's a fire of consuming judgment. Every person will be tested, but those who belong to God's temple will be glorified with Christ, and all the sin will be burned away. So, how does God build his temple? He dwells in the temple, he equips the workers, and he tests the structure. God builds his temple by testing the structure. Now, those of you who are students, or maybe a long time ago were students, recall when you had to take exams. If you had an easy exam that was coming, you did not study very hard, or at least I didn't. If it was easy, I kind of, you know, did other things. But if it was hard, I knew to prepare for it, and I went and I studied hard, and usually by the end, even though the exam was more difficult, I performed better because I was prepared. And a hard exam changes your attitude toward the material. According to 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17, God tests the temple structure. And his testing of that structure reveals the seriousness of the work of building up the church. He tests the structure to find what belongs and what doesn't belong to the temple. If someone does not have faith in Christ, they will be purged. If someone does have faith in Christ, he or she will be purified and made a more beautiful part of the church temple. The builders are then rewarded according to the manner in which they built. Therefore, if they ministered to people with wisdom of the cross and that person grew in Christ-likeness, then the builder is rewarded when the temple is tested. So, brothers and sisters, when you minister to your brother or sister in Christ, you minister to a living stone of God's temple. The manner in which you minister to that other person has eternal consequences because this is an eternal work. Are you contributing to the growth of Christ in your brother or sister? 
Your work in that person's life will be tested at the day of the Lord. Will Christ find that you contributed to the growth of Christ-likeness in their character? You contribute to your brother's or sister's growth in Christ by treating them as living stones, by treating them with honor and respect. Behave as Paul says in 1 Philippians 2 and 3 when you interact with other Christians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Christ gave his life for these precious living stones, so count their lives as worthy of Christ's sacrifice. You also contribute to your brothers or sisters in Christ by speaking the truth in love. Now that's hard, speaking the truth in love. Some of you might be really good at speaking the truth, but maybe less so in love. Others of you may struggle with speaking the truth, but are really gifted in loving the other person. So, you probably know who that other person is in uh, your church who possesses gifts that you do not have. If you are really good at speaking the truth, but you know, struggle with doing so in love, find someone in this body who is really good at loving other people and ask, hey, will you teach me to speak the truth in love? Likewise, if you know that you're really good at loving someone else in the congregation, but you really struggle to speak the truth, then find someone in the congregation that God has gifted with the gift of speaking the truth and say, hey, brother or sister, can you teach me how to say the truth well so that I can speak the truth in love? Iron sharpens iron, or in this case, stones sharpen stones. Also, remember that your ministry has eternal consequences. What you do in this church matters for all eternity. So don't give your leftover energy or leftover time to the church. The life of the church is serious business. Finally, if you are in Christ, rest. Rest in his finished work. Even when... And we all will fail. Even when you fail to properly edify your brothers or sisters, God still loves you. God purchased you, and God purchased your brothers and sisters. It is not up to you, because remember, God is the one who builds the church, and we are just his fellow workers. And Christ will still bring you to the day of judgment safely, and you will get to spend an eternal, glorious day with him at our Father's throne. So rest as you minister in the church. Finally, if you are here today and you have not put your trust in Christ to be your salvation, I beg you, put your trust in him. Are you going to trust in your own works on that day? Because they will be tested and they will not stand. So trust in Christ's work. When the pharaohs of ancient Egypt built their magnificent tombs, they went all out. They hired the best workers. They bought the best materials. And they made sure that it was built right. So that when they went and lived lived in their tomb after they died, they could lay in state and magnificence. 
But our Father, he builds a temple of people. He bought you. He equips you. And you get to spend a lifetime with him in glory. So as we read 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17, we ask the question, how does God build his temple? Well, we found out that God builds his temple by dwelling in the building, by equipping the builders, and he tests the structure. So because God is the one who builds his temple and he does it his way, we must likewise build his way and follow him. Only then will we avoid the rivalries and factionalism that plagued the Corinthian church. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is our unity, that you are the one who builds the church, that it is not up to us because we would fail and we do fail. So we ask that you would be with us today as we repent from our sins and turn to you for salvation and strength in the daily task of building the church. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.